Well, we've just finished singing one of the least known Christmas carols of all time. Uh, to be honest, until Grant told me about it, I was completely unfamiliar with it. But what a beautiful song and what haunting lyrics, right? If you didn't catch it, the title is Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. And yeah, it's such an old song. Going all the way back, its roots are probably in the, the earliest church in Jerusalem, if you can imagine. Um, the title and the opening line of the hymn are based on the word of the Lord spoken through the prophet Habakkuk, who way back in the 7th century BC warned Judah about worshiping false gods. So with that in mind, listen to uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. This is where that song comes from. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake, or to a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. And here comes the contrast, right? The difference between idols made with human hands versus the living God, right? But Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So think about this. Down here on the earth, when we go into the courtroom of an earthly judge, we respect his position, his person, and we come in with silence. We're silent before him. How much more then ought a man or a woman be silent before Yahweh, the creator and the judge over all? In light of who he is, his majesty, his power, his holiness, and his wrath, all creation bows before him, as we sang, with fear and trembling, and the foolishness of any man who rejects such a great God and instead devotes his life to the worship of material things, things made by human beings, that person will be judged accordingly. Now, you heard Grant read the first two stanzas of the song earlier, and hopefully you, you caught the reference to, first, the incarnation, and second, a reference to the cross as well, and to the celebration of communion. Let me put these words back up. Christ our God, to earth descending, King of kings, yet born of Mary, Lord of lords in human likeness, in the body and the blood he will give to all the faithful his own self for heavenly food. Alleluia, the Christ has come. Alleluia, the Holy One. Beautiful song. Now, one of the best things about the Christmas season is singing Christmas carols. We love it. We love the brightness of the season. We love all the cheer that it brings. We got the lights and the decorations. You guys, are you starting to get into that festive spirit? Is it happening? We have the gift giving. We have the parties. We have a party tonight, right? It's a great time of year, and it should be. We're celebrating the fact that the light of the world came to earth and made a way for sinners like you and I to see and to know God on a personal level. But at the same time, we shouldn't gloss over the fact that the Christmas story has a heavy side to it as well. I might even go so far as to say it has a dark side. And that's part of our discussion this morning. First, there's the actual historical situation on the ground. Maybe you've heard people talk about this before, but the Christmas story that we love so much that's celebrated in all those Christmas cards has a really dark side to it. You've got this opening in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, right? You begin to read the story that, that begins in Galilee, and you gives you a, a hint that the conditions of the land were not great at that time. The Jewish people are living under Roman occupation and they're suffering under the cruelty of Gentile rule. And these folks living up in the north in Galilee, they're simply trying to eke out an existence and to faithfully worship Yahweh in the midst of poverty 
and in the midst of the hardship that goes with that. And of course, the Christmas story centers around this young couple who are cast out of their hometown, right? Cast out of their hometown. Uh, she pregnant. Um, and let's just say pregnant under, I'll just say, sketchy circumstances, right? And he courageously standing by, by his betrothed, but they take off, right? And they find themselves having to travel from way up in, in Galilee all the way down south into Judea on foot, on foot. And if you've been to Israel, commercial, we're going this November. If you've been to Israel, we're going we're to take that trip in a bus and you'll go, this is a long trip. Consider it on foot. Why? Because of a Roman order. Because a Roman emperor declared that a census should be taken. I can't even imagine how hard that traveling would have been for Mary, nine months pregnant. Eventually, as they reach their destination in Bethlehem, Mary, of course, is in labor, and they have to make do with delivering this baby in a, some kind of a cave that is used to bring the animals inside at night. And when she delivers, she has to put her baby in a feeding trough. Imagine, moms, can you imagine that type of unsterile environment giving birth? Then you have the supporting cast in the story. They're not the elites of society. They're these lowly shepherds out in their fields, tending their flocks. And they get caught up in this amazing drama, this desperate situation. And if you look at it, the most glamorous characters in the story are the Magi, right? These mysterious men from the East who show up, but they get dragged into the darkness as well. King Herod tries to deceive them, right, into revealing the location of the child that they're seeking. They're forced to trick Herod after seeing the child, taking a different route out of Israel so that they don't have to divulge his identity and location. And so what does Herod do in response? Perhaps the worst thing that we see in Scripture, right? Enraged, the so-called king of the Jews. He's the, the king of the Jews. Imagine that. Really a pagan and a megalomaniac. He orders that every child in Bethlehem under the age of two be gathered up and executed. And as horrific as that order is, we shouldn't forget that there were soldiers that were willing to obey that order, to literally rip babies from the arms of their mothers and slaughter them. And so Mary and Joseph and their newborn are forced to run for their lives. They have to flee Judea and head south into Egypt and hide themselves away until Herod is taken off the scene. So yes, at Christmas time, we celebrate the light of the world invading the darkness. But think about this. The darkness was pushing back. There's hardship to this story. Here's the other thing we don't think about often when we celebrate Christmas. It's usually not on your Christmas card. Judgment. Judgment. Along with the arrival of the Christ child came judgment. Grab your Bibles. We're going to read out of Matthew chapter 3 this morning. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 3. As you know, this four-week series we're doing for Advent uh, is called Your King is Coming. So far, we looked at two huge aspects of the first advent of Christ. Number one, God revealing himself to the world. It all starts there, right? If God doesn't reveal himself, how can we know him? And then second, God redeeming a people for himself. We celebrate that every single day we're together, that God has redeemed us, a people for himself. And now this morning, this third crucial aspect that God is coming, your king is coming to judge. Matthew chapter three, verse one. Now, this chapter is all about John the Baptist, right? This man who was chosen by God to pave the way for the coming of Messiah. And John comes onto the scene like an Old Testament prophet, doesn't he? He's sort of a living, breathing law of God, pointing his bony finger from the Jordan River 
and issuing these warnings to the Jewish people. He is going to preach a message of repentance and preparation. He's going to baptize and he's going to point people to the coming Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Verse 1, now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Is at hand is the key phrase right there. Notice the mood of John's words. This is urgency. This is an urgent message. Acknowledge your sin, repent, and be cleansed in these waters. Why? Because ready or not, the kingdom is about to burst on the scene. Something very, very big is about to explode into that time and into that place. A Get this, a visitation from Yahweh himself. I mean, it's one thing for God to send a prophet, but a visitation from Yahweh in the flesh. So the people need to be prepared, right? When God moves in this type of way, revealing himself in such a direct manner, listen, it shakes the whole world. The, the earth cannot be the same after God does a thing like this. And that's what's on John's mind as he's preaching. Verse three, for this is the one, that is John the Baptist, referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That is John's message. Verse four, now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Basically, he lived a hermit's life out there in the wilderness to the east. Far from, far from all the powers that be in Jerusalem, he doesn't care for them. Verse five, then Jerusalem was going out to him. That is an amazing statement. They were going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Now, it is no small thing to travel from Jerusalem out to the Jordan River. Again, those of you who are going in November, we will see that we will take a bus on that trip and you'll go, wow, it's more than 20 miles and difficult terrain. But it tells you how compelling the ministry of John the Baptist had, what type of ministry he had back then. The people would flock from Jerusalem to go see him. Verse seven, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now imagine the audacity of this statement. Here's this guy standing in the waters of the Jordan in a camel hair tunic. I picture his hair all matted. He looks like a wild man. And he turns to these very powerful men and says, you pack of snakes. Imagine that scene. John does not care about winning the favor of men. Right? This is, this is one of my great prayers. Lord, do not let me fear the opinions of men. John had that. He's about repentance and preparation for God's visitation. What does he mean when he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John is wondering why these guys have suddenly decided to come out and see what he's up to. Since when do you guys care about being cleansed from sin, is what he's saying. He's questioning their motivation. John suspects that they've only come out to observe him, not, not, not to actually confess their sins. They're out there as spies because they're worried about uh, the ministry that he has and all these people going to them and they, they fear losing control of the people and John knows it in his heart. Verse eight, therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. In other words, you won't be able to plead that ethnicity thing or that bloodline thing on the judgment day when your sins are exposed. Don't even try it. 
Listen now, verse 10, this is key. The ax is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is a powerful metaphor. These agricultural metaphors meant so much to the people in Judah at that time. All of humanity, he says, is like an orchard of trees and the farmer is on his way and he's got a big old ax with him. And the trees that are bearing good fruit, he will pass over and they will be spared. But the trees that have rotten fruit on them, there's nothing to do with them but to cut them down, remove them and throw them into the fire. But look at the grammar there in verse 10. The ax is already being swung, John declares. It's written in the present tense. The ax is being swung right now. So the lesson is clear. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, lest you end up in the chop zone. John sounds just like an Old Testament prophet, doesn't he? Verse 11, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now that phrase, Holy Spirit and fire, has been hotly debated for centuries. But I, here's the way I read it. I don't think it's that difficult. When God the Son arrives on the earth, he comes preaching, right? And he comes doing miracles. And he also does something very important. He divides we don't like to think much about that when we talk about Jesus, right? But he's one who divides people into camps. Every single person who hears about Jesus and the message of the gospel is either going to have one, or, one of two things happen. They'll either be washed by the Holy Spirit or they'll be burned by the fire. There's no third option, folks. I know we want to hedge that as human beings. Give me a third option. Help me shade the truth. That's it. There's just the two, good fruit or rotten fruit. Blessing or burning, salvation or judgment. And we'll go to verse 12. His winnowing fork. Today we would call that a pitchfork, right? It's in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Merry Christmas, right? When a farmer goes to grab hold a pile of wheat, he uses a pitchfork, and he he grabs a big chunk and he throws it up in the air and the breeze comes through and it blows out the chaff, the useless chaff. And what falls to the ground is the, the husk that's of value. And what falls to the ground is gathered up and taken into the barn and the chaff is blown away. It's just burned up. In other words, John is describing here a separating process. It's a separating, a dividing process. And this is what's about to happen with humanity with the coming of Christ. Humanity is about to be thrown up into the air. It's going to separate one group from the other. And the stuff of value God will gather into his barn. And the rest, the chaff will be done away with, thrown in the fire. What John the Baptist declared that day was in perfect harmony with the exact place where God left off in the Old Testament. In fact, look at this. This is from Malachi the last chapter and the last prophecy of the Hebrew scriptures. Malachi cries out in the same way as John, for behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be what? Chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Okay, so similar language, fire and chaff. But look at the good news. Be 
But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. There's a division into two camps, right? Even Malachi talked about it. John picks up from that, from that very spot. So this is obviously a really serious picture that Malachi and John are drawing for the world. And for all those folks that are out there right now who, you know, the folks who've never really read the Bible, but they want to insist that, that you know, God doesn't judge people, that they don't like that, right? They don't want to hear it. Jesus is all tolerance and love because they, 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 they'll, they'll say it so certainly like, well, I've, I've read the Bible. No, they haven't. But they'll say, you know, Jesus is all about tolerance and love. This message hits them hard. And that's why we have to talk about the full gospel, right? Not just the exciting news, but the bad news first. When we talk to unbelievers about God's wrath and about God's judgment, it's important that we do it with theologically accurate terms and also with thoughtfully rational ideas because you'll hear people say I don't want anything to do with your God because he judges people and he punishes them so then we have to explain to them what would happen if God wasn't to judge what would actually happen if he decided not to do anything about sin but just let all of us run free is that really the God you want see the wrath of God is really not God being petulant or short-tempered the wrath of God is the result of his perfect love colliding with human sin and injustice. It's a collision. What should he do? What should God do? Should he do nothing about sin? Should he look the other way? Should he tolerate everything? Would that really be loving? These are important conversations to have. What about all those people who are victimized by human sin? What about all the injustices in the world? More on that later. What we're going to find, and this is what we need to be able to explain to unbelievers, we're going to find that God's wrath doesn't contradict his love. What it does is it proves his love to be righteous and true. And so we have to get that into our heads. Here's the thing you have to remember at Christmas time. When the kingdom of heaven breaks into our world in such a direct way like it did 2,000 years ago, when God comes to mankind in a direct way, that visitation is always going to come with a burning sense of justice. And with that comes wrath and judgment. And so we should expect nothing different. So your king is coming to judge, present tense. And I want to dive into that more. Two weeks ago, we looked at a key passage in Romans chapter one. I promised we'd come back to it. Let me put it up on the screen. It's such a key passage. And it's a familiar verse. We know this pretty well. Romans one, verses 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. And so the Greek verb apocalypto is being used here by Paul. It means to reveal in English. The righteousness of God is revealed. And, and Paul writes it in the present indicative form, which means he's describing something that is ongoing and continuous. Now look at the next verse, verse 18. For the wrath of God is what? It's also revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Same Greek verb, apocalypto, same present indicative form. So the picture we get here is this. The righteousness of God always has been, continues to be in the present, and will right up to the end be revealed to mankind from faith to faith. 
As we discussed last Sunday, that is the, the power of salvation, how God is redeeming a people for himself. It's by faith alone and not by our works. And even that faith is a gift from God, nothing that we've earned. And now we see parallel with that. At the same time of this revealing of God's righteousness, righteousness we now have this ongoing, continuous revealing of God's wrath. And so the history of sinful man is a history of God's judgment, past, present, and future. Judgment always is there. His judgment has been revealed in the past. It's being revealed right now in the present. It will be revealed right up until the day that God creates a new heaven and a new earth for us and ushers us into an eternal state. So let's look at the historical record about God's judgment in the scriptures. Let's look at the Old Testament in the past. We know these very clearly, but let's just list them. First of all, we have a judgment way back in Genesis 3, don't we? In the garden. A judgment against Adam and Eve, which then trickles down to you and I, right? Don't you, don't you love that? Don't you want to have a conversation with Adam and Eve in heaven? Knuckleheads. Right? I, I, I've joked about this before. I feel like everybody gets ushered into the kingdom, we get to slap them one time, right? But honestly, we probably wouldn't have done any better, right? Okay, judgment number two, the flooding of the earth in Genesis 7, right? A judgment against, against all humanity with the exception of Noah and his family. And then judgment number three at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, a judgment upon the arrogance of mankind, that they could build this, this tower up to heaven and make a name for themselves. And God causes them to be dispersed across the earth as he confuses their language. Then we see a series of localized judgments against specific people, groups, and nations, We'll put these up as well. First, the judgment against Egypt and their gods, which I find so interesting. God judges not just Pharaoh and Egypt, but also their gods. He pours out the plagues upon Pharaoh until he agrees to free the Israelites from slavery. And then we see the judgment upon the wicked Canaanite tribes that had settled in the land that God promised to Abraham, right? And God used Joshua and his armies to drive them out. And he'll judge other pagan nations as well. In Isaiah 17 to 23, we see this whole list of judgments against nations. Why? Because of the enemies of God's people, Israel. Damascus, Egypt, Cush, which is modern-day Sudan, Babylon, Arabia, Tyre, and so many more. But what's amazing in the Old Testament is we also see that Yahweh will not spare his own people from judgment. Listed among the nations are his own nations, both Israel and and Judah, who will suffer judgment. We know very obviously at the hands of the Assyrians, first of all, and then the Babylonians later on. So we have all these, we have the history of judgment in the Old Testament. Let's go forward now to the New Testament past. We've already looked at what John the Baptist declared prior to the coming of the Jesus and his public ministry. But the question is, what about Jesus? What does he say about judgment? After all, he's God in the flesh. What does he have to say about it? Well, early on, he made the great declaration that you see on the screen there, right? This is the very famous John chapter 3, verse, not 16, not 316, but 317. Jesus says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And you're like, oh, okay, well, there you go. Jesus had a a completely different mission. He didn't come to judge anybody just to save. Uh Uh-oh, there's a verse right after there, isn't there? What's the next verse say? He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already. Judged already because he's not believed in the name 
of the only begotten Son of God. Oh, interesting. Already judged. We see the same thing in John chapter 12 a little bit later. If anyone hears my sayings, Jesus says, and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. You're like, oh, okay, that's it. God, Jesus just came to save. What's the next verse say? Right? If anyone hears my sayings and does not, oh wait, sorry. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke, which every word Jesus spoke came from where? From the Father. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. See, this is the manifestation of the same principle we looked at earlier. Two parallel tracks happening simultaneously. God's righteousness, righteousness being revealed in Christ, and some take hold of that by faith, and they're saved. And at the same time, God's wrath being revealed through Christ, and every rebellious man who refuses him will be judged for his unrepentant heart. So the first advent of Christ was clearly a mission to save. There's no question. But listen to me now. Hear this carefully. It was a mission to save, but it necessarily came with a mission to judge as well. There's just no avoiding it, right? Because as John said, good fruit on some trees will highlight the fact that the fruit over here is rotten. True? And the presence of wheat over here is going to show that that's the chaff that blew away. The separation and the division. You cannot have one without the other. Now what about the cross? Well, we see a similar message with the cross. This is so interesting. In John 12, and we covered this passage not too long ago, as Jesus is beginning to feel the weight of the coming crucifixion, he sees not only redemption and the payment of sin, the payment of the ransom for the penalty of sin, but he senses the judgment as well. In John 12, on the day that he arrives in Jerusalem for the last time, he becomes troubled in his spirit, and he says simply, now judgment is upon this world. And I find this so interesting. In that moment where he's just days away from being crucified, Jesus could have cried out, now salvation has come. Right? He could have said, now the ransom for sin will be paid. But instead, he says, now judgment is upon this world. Two parallel tracks, they go together. And so just like his arrival, Jesus' death will contribute to that separating process. Some will be drawn to him. They'll be drawn to the cross, right? Others will see the cross and be horrified and turn away and say, no, thanks, I don't need that. Two camps, a separation. So Old Testament past, we have this pattern of judgment. New Testament past, another pattern of judgment. Here's the question, what about today? Is God judging the world in our day right now? It's an interesting question, right? You'll get a lot of opinions on this, by the way. The answer is yes. But I say that with a caution. And I'll explain it just a bit. Because here's the thing. Right now, we have just gone through a global pandemic. And that has sort of tweaked our thinking on this, right? Now, we've always had earthquakes and hurricanes and all kinds of, we call them natural disasters, right? But COVID has really woken people up. Even, it's so funny, even pagan unbelievers who wouldn't come near a church are beginning to speak in apocalyptic terms. Have you noticed this? They, they, they can't help themselves because they look out and they go, what is going on? I saw a tweet from, you guys know who Sarah Ferguson is? Only old guys do. Uh, the Duchess of York. Come on, people. She gained a lot of attention recently. She tweeted this. She said, 
Get this now. Mother Nature has sent us to our rooms like spoiled children. She gave us time and she gave us warnings. She gave us fires and floods. She tried to warn us, but in the end, she took back control. Now, of course, that's ridiculous, right? But people are just having a hard time processing what's going on in the world. So they're grasping at the same type of apocalyptic language that we believe is true. But yes, God is judging the world today. Romans 1.18 confirmed that, right? The wrath of God is revealed, present tense, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, here's the caution. Here's the caution. When, men, when people ask the question, is God judging the world right now? Here's what they're actually asking. Can we pin a specific disaster as a specific punishment on a specific people for a specific set of sins? And the answer is no. We can't, right? We don't have biblical grounds to say yes or no to that. If we were to do that, we would need new and special revelation from God, and that's not coming. So we've got to be careful. Sometimes we just spout off, you know, as if we've put the dots together and we're suddenly in the mind of God and we can figure all this out. Be really cautious about that. We can affirm a general sense that God's wrath is being poured out. And we see this in so many ways. Romans 1 talks about this, the foolishness, right? The, the sexual sin. It talks about people not being able to think straight. So we see the, the moral confusion going on around us. We see the sexual confusion. We see the rise of violence. We see the destruction of families and marriages. We see the murders of babies. And we know all of that comes about, right? Because in a sense, we see God lifting his hand from our world and handing us over to the desires of our hearts, which are wicked from beginning to end, are they not? But we have to stop short of saying, and I've heard Christians do this, of saying, well, HIV is a judgment for this. Or COVID came because of this in some specific way. Or that hurricane hit that city because we ought not do that. We just don't have the mind of God on, on things like that. At the same time, we have to avoid the other, the other side of the coin. We go, well, that's just a natural disaster, as if God had no control over it as if that's somehow outside of his sovereign rule. We shouldn't do that either, right? Because the truth is, every war and every famine, disease, hurricane, earthquake, it does come from a sovereign God who is over all. So why does God do that? Well, oftentimes, those things serve as a wake-up call for a lost world. They're a foretaste of a much greater judgment to come. This is that already-not-yet motif, right? God is already pouring out his wrath, and we see that in the creation groaning, but it's not yet to the full. And so God, through his ambassadors, people like us, we can point to the general pouring out of God's wrath and say, guys, see this? This is really bad, but it's going to get much worse. So repent and come to saving faith in Christ. Does that make sense? Now, here's a challenging question. Is God judging you? Is God judging me as his children? Hmm. I feel like it put on the Jeopardy music, right? This requires a little bit of nuance. There is no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus, right? Romans 8, 1. But yeah, scripture says there is judgment. There is judgment. Listen to 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for what? For your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, right? Through that trial, keep on rejoicing 
so that also at the revelation of his glory, oh, now we're going to the, to the end, right? You may rejoice with exultation. Skipping forward to verse 17 in that passage, for it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. <gasps> for it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. So in this section, what Peter is doing is exhorting the church, the household of God, to stand firm in the face of persecution. They're going through it in the first century. And he says, stand firm. That fiery ordeal that's come upon you, God has, uh, God has brought that on you to test you and he will carry you through it. Stand firm. So God allows a measure of suffering in the lives of people like you and I to test us and to purify us from sin. To purify us from sin, to mature us in the faith. Now, Peter uses the term judgment, but elsewhere in the New Testament, we see the word discipline being brought into the picture, right? Hebrews 12, we know this passage. It's for discipline that you endure, he says. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Listen, his dis he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. It's that purifying nature, right? All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Can I get an amen? Yet to those who have been trained by it, ooh, Trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's the process we all need but don't want. True? So God's judgment and his discipline starts at home, among his children whom he loves. It's actually an expression of his love. It's actually an expression of his love because he knows, he knows how hard it's going to be. He'll carry you through it. But what he sees that we can't see is the fruit of righteousness that comes at the end of that trial. So it's an expression of his love. And listen, if you're a parent, you know this truth. It's, you know this is true. Do you not discipline your own children for their long-term good? Of course you do. You know that's, that spanking's going to hurt. Right? That, that grounding is going to hurt. But in the long run, I know it's good for my child. So we understand this principle. Now, Scripture makes a, a distinction, this is important, between God's purifying discipline of his own and the ultimate condemnation of the wicked. Those are two different things. Make sure you know that. In fact, Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 31 and 32, is really instructive on this. If you know 1 Corinthians 11, this is Paul. He's upset at the Corinthian church in the way that they're handling communion, right? They're treating the Lord's table with contempt. And he writes this. He says, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Okay? If we judged ourselves rightly and repented of sin, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, right? These are believers. When we are judged by God, we're disciplined by the Lord. So you see the connection between judgment and discipline there. When we're judged, we're disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned with the world. Right? So it's God's judgment upon our sin and the discipline he brings into our lives that in the long run is going to draw us nearer to him. And when that happens, it provides evidence that we do belong to him and not to the world. And the opposite is true. When, 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 when judgment comes upon somebody who claims faith, but then they abandon the faith after they receive that discipline, that provides evidence that they were never saved to begin with and that they're headed for condemnation with the world. Both of those things are true. So once again, we see God's judgment, even in the household of God, being this separating process. It reveals who truly belongs to him and who never did. 
Merry Christmas. <laughs> right? Okay, so I'm running short of time, but I haven't touched on the, the, the one thing that you probably thought of when you heard judgment. The future. Don't we all love to talk about the end of days? Right? I mean, how many times have you guys come up, when are you going to do Revelation? <laughs> Don't do that to me. So the future is where this already not yet motif really becomes obvious, right? As we've seen, the judgment and wrath of God is already here. It's already here, but the fullness of it is not yet. It remains to be poured out. In a general sense, we can point to four, four judgments that are coming in the future. The first one is the great tribulation, right? The great tribulation described in the book of Revelation, and really the great tribulation is a series of three judgments, right? Or sub-judgments upon the earth. And each one, with each one, there's a growing intensity and there's a greater uh, uh, devastating result with each one. We have seven seals that are open, we have seven trumpets that are blown, and we have seven bowls of wrath that are poured out. The first in the series, the seven seals, includes something very important, the, the revealing of the Antichrist. We have warfare and famine and plague upon the earth, a great earthquake, cosmic upheaval. And in that, in the seals, we have the martyrdom of many believers who refuse to renounce Christ and take the mark of the beast. Revelation 6.16 tells us that those who survive the six seals will literally cry out to the mountains and rocks, please fall on us, kill us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and the wrath of the lamb. For, here it is, the great day of their wrath has come. Now, eschatology. This is for my fellow elders because we, we debate this all the time. If you are a pre-wrath guy, this is the moment I believe the rapture of the church takes, takes place. Some of our elders, our pre-trib guys, love them. It's, it's possible. I'm a pre-wrath guy. It literally says, and Jeff Steele agrees, amen. The great day of the wrath has come. So we are not appointed to wrath as believers. And we have martyrdom here. So we have believers being martyred for their faith. And then the announcement's made, here comes the great wrath of God. And I believe the rapture takes place at that point. But we can disagree. The seventh seal then introduces those seven trumpet judgments. More wrath is poured out upon the earth and the seventh trumpet calls forth seven angels who carry the seven bowls of God's wrath and we get even more horrific consequences. And what's important with the bowls of wrath is this. That includes the advance of the, of the armies of the Antichrist as they come into the land of Israel to fight one final battle. They're literally, this is, I still, I don't know if I'm going to I don't know if I'm going to see this, but I'm still amazed that they can actually rally a, a physical army to fight against God. But they're so arrogant, they believe that they can come to the land of Israel, to the plains of Megiddo, right, at Armageddon, and that they can make war against the Lamb of God. Now, the king of glory at this point has returned to Zion, and he's going to destroy that army. He's going to destroy his enemies, including the Antichrist and the false prophet. And so we have this period of the Great Tribulation. Then comes the second judgment. And there's debate about this one as well when this takes place. It's called the Bema Seat Judgment. The Bema Seat. Now this one, this judgment takes place in the heavenly realms, not on the earth, and it is only for true followers of Christ. Again, judgment upon the household of God. 
but only in the best possible way. Now, some scholars believe that this takes place right as the church is raptured into the heavens. Some people believe it happens when Christ returns and after he destroys his enemies. I don't have a strong opinion on that. I'm just glad this judgment takes place. It's a good thing. At the Bema seat, every resurrected believer will be judged based on his or her works. What did we do while serving the kingdom? Now, make sure you understand this. Sin is not in view with this judgment. This is not about your sins are not going to be brought up before you. They're paid for. They're wiped away. They're buried in the deepest parts of the ocean, right? They're gone as far as the east is from the west. There's going to be no record of your sins brought before you. Hallelujah, right? So sin is not in view here at all, right? This, this, the penalty for sin was paid. What's in view here is your faithfulness in Christian service. Your faithfulness in Christian service. Paul lays this out in 2 Corinthians 5, 5.10. Speaking to believers, this is key. Speaking to believers, he writes, we must all appear before the judgment seat. That's that word bima, the seat. The judgment seat of Christ. Every believer, you must appear before the bema seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And we shouldn't be surprised at this. Do you remember the parallel, parallel, uh, parable? I can't even say it now because I'm, ugh. I've had, I, I think I've got like three different types of medication in me and about four cups of coffee to get through this. So it's hitting me right now. Get ready to catch me. No. Mm, okay. The parable of the money usage. That's what I wanted to say in Luke chapter 19. Do you remember the story? The king says, look, when I return... I expect that we'll sit down and talk about how you've handled the investments I gave you, right? It's not like, oh, the king came back, no big deal. We're not going to talk about it. No, he's going to demand an accounting for the resources he gave to you. It's the same idea here with the Bema seat. That's what's at stake. What did you and I do with the resources God gave us? In the days that you were given on the earth, what did you do with those resources? What did you do? He's gifted you. What did you do with those gifts? Did you bury it? Or did you invest it? How faithful were you? So the Bema seat is a time of examination. Jesus, the judge, will examine, inspect our works, and this is key, and the heart behind our works. Not just the works, but the heart behind it. Why did you do what you did? Was it for your own ego, for your own glory? Did you steal God's glory as you were serving the kingdom? Did you do it to, to check a box, or did you do it to make yourself look good? What was the heart behind it? And so this is going to be a time of either reward or loss of reward. Paul tells us that our service to God is going to somehow be tested by fire and it's going to come out one of two ways. It's either going to survive the fire and come out as precious stones, gold and silver, or it's going to get burned up when it gets tested because what? It's wood, hay, and straw. So whenever the beam of seat judgment happens, we want to give an account for the kingdom with joy, don't we? Don't we want to face that day with great anticipation and joy of the rewards that Christ is going to give us? It's a great motivation for us to be serving and not just serving in the church, but serving with the right heart to glorify Lord, to point people to Christ as we serve one another. Make sense? Again, don't misunderstand me here. The Bema Seed is not about being saved or not being saved. Every single person who comes to the Bema Seed judgment will enter into God's glory. The only question is crowns. The only question is rewards or not. But everybody will go into glory. Make sense? That's the second one. Third one is what we call the judgment of the nations from Matthew 25. 
When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So this takes place after Christ has returned to earth and destroyed his enemies. This is a judgment that takes place on the earth, not in the heavens. Now we have King Jesus in all his glory sitting on his throne in Jerusalem, just as the Old Testament prophets predicted he would. And he will bring forth judgment upon everybody who survived the great tribulation up to this point. Remember, by this time, much of the population of the world has been wiped out. There's not that many people still alive. And, and he will have just destroyed this massive Gentile army. So the people that are brought forth in this judgment are the ones who are left over, primarily non-combatants in this great struggle. And it appears that during this period, some in the population have not only survived, but they've come to saving faith in Christ. These are the, the sheep that Jesus will place on his right. And the others, the goats, will have sided with the Antichrist and against the Lamb of God. They will have survived the tribulation, but Jesus now puts them on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, come you are blessed, who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So the sheep are going to be ushered into the millennial kingdom, into the millennial kingdom. They will enjoy the blessings of Christ's rule from Jerusalem. Then he will also say to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So again, the purpose of this judgment of the nations is what? To separate, to divide into two camps, dividing the righteous from the unrighteous in preparation for what comes next, which is the millennial reign of Christ. And it's interesting, only the sheep go into the millennial kingdom. So only the righteous believers go into the kingdom. It's almost as if a replaying of Noah and his family getting off the ark and repopulating the earth. Only the righteous come into this new thousand-year kingdom. Last one, last judgment, will be quick. The great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. This is the final judgment. It takes place at the end of those thousand years, at the end of the millennial kingdom, and just before God brings together this new heavens and new earth, the eternal state. Okay, It's only for unbelievers. The great white throne judgment is only for unbelievers. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. Listen, they're not going to have any argument in that day. Every thought, every word, every action taken will be recorded. They'll have no choice. They'll have no objection. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, all of them, everyone according to their deeds. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The great white throne judgment. So we've got these four basic judgments in the future. So guys, the history of sinful man is the history of God's judgment. Okay? Nobody likes talking about this, by the way. You know, when the elders go, hey, let's talk about judgment for Christmas. It's not the most exciting thing. I don't really like doing it, but listen, like it or not, judgment is a part of the Christmas story. Can't get around it. You can't avoid it because God loves holiness and he loves justice, right? It's actually a mark. I'll, I'll put this up. This is Psalm 45, 6. 
This is a mark and character of who God is. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of justice is the scepter of your kingdom. That's what marks his kingdom. He's a God of justice. And we should be glad that it is, that that's who our God is. But we can't overlook the hard truth that comes with it, right? That if God is going to establish holiness and justice, he must also bring wrath and judgment. They go together. I, read, I was reading this week as I was studying a story of the great Frederick Douglass. Some of you guys have studied him. This, this former slave who eventually became a statesman in the United States, became an abolitionist. In his autobiography, he wrote this powerful sentence that, that jumps off the page. When he looked back at the evil of, of slavery in this country, when he looked at the suffering that he and others went through, he wrote this. He said, will not a righteous God visit for these things? It's a question that, that I'm finding myself ask more and more these days. Will God not visit for these things? When, every time I hear another story about a young girl being trafficked, right? I ask the question, with every senseless violent crime that happens in our cities, with every story of another sexual abuse victim, with every story of abortion clinics that remain open, killing babies each and every day, will not a righteous God visit for these things? See, if you dismiss God's judgment and his wrath with a wave of your hand, say, oh, I just don't like it. I just don't like the fact that God judges people and punishes them. Then you're dismissing the pain and the suffering and the injustice that every victim of human sin has had to endure, as if it doesn't matter. Oh, it's easy to wave it off and say, I don't like that. But there's a, there's a result of that. You're dismissing all of that. Is that really loving? Is that really compassionate? As we talk to unbelievers, especially at Christmas time, to say it is not okay for us to say that God's all tolerance and love and nothing else. Of course we can talk about God's love. But to say that he's nothing else, for love to be truly loving, there has to be an accounting for sin. Say it to people. Say it. Will not a righteous God visit for these things? And then once we do that, once we point people to the, the, the sinfulness of this world and the fact that God is someday going to make all things right, make sure at Christmas time that you come back to this truth as well, that you come back to the cross and say, you know what? Now that I think about it, I deserve to be judged too. I'm not just pointing at other people. I'm saying, you know what? I deserve to be punished as well. I deserve God's wrath. I deserve his judgment. But thanks be to God for the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. Were it not for that, we too would be part of this condemnation. That's the message. That's the message of Christmas. Let's make sure we, we preach it. Let's pray. Father, uh, hard, hard truths this morning. Difficult things for us to process through. We, we just like the Christmas card stuff. We just like the, the, the pretty lights and the, the cute baby in the manger and and that's okay, Lord. We can celebrate those things, right? But Father, I pray that you will help us to see more clearly what else comes with that baby in the manger. That we will not shy away from the truth of, of your judgment and your wrath. And to see it as an expression of your love. An, an expression of your holiness and your justice, which truth be told, we all want. So Lord, teach us this Christmas to take in the whole picture, not just the parts we like. Even as we read 
from Luke 2 in, in our families this, this month as we, as we look at the story, as, as we even tell it to our children, Lord, that we would include all of the elements, all of these aspects that you've revealed yourself to us, that you are redeeming a people, but also, Lord, that you bring judgment. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for the full character of who you are. We worship you this morning. May we praise you now. May we praise you from a pure heart as we sing. In Christ's name we pray, amen.